He pursues us. Now we are to pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. So let us pursue those near us, those that He has set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So run, chase those you know, chase those you love, for He has called us to build His kingdom. Hello, my name is Jimmy Underwood, and my story is about pursuing my neighbor. We uh, first met when he moved in, and we shared some common interests. He was really into working out, I'm really into working out, He's into cars, working on cars, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we just started having conversations about God. He started asking me questions because he knew about my faith. Um, and then some of the hard questions started coming in where he came up to me one day and started asking me about um, his marriage, what I thought about you know, divorce and stuff like that, and said his, him and his wife weren't doing very well. Um, and I told him that it's really you know, not an option in my eyes. Um, and kind of told him kind of where my heart was with, with marriage because I'm very passionate about it. Um, and he started asking some questions that were a little bit more difficult, um, difficult for me to answer. And I, and I told him that. I said, these are, these are kind of big, hard questions for me to answer. So I suggested uh, him maybe thinking about doing a marriage study with us. Um, and he, he talked to his wife about it, thought it was a, was a good idea, and invited some other uh, married friends of theirs that we, we didn't even know. So we had a couple other married couples in there. I think they just felt more comfortable having uh, some of their friends that may have been non-believers um, in there as well, which was we were totally cool with. Um, and then the group got started, and we were very consistent, did a six-week program with them. And um, it, we always grow from things like that, working on a marriage, always. Um, and it was an amazing feeling for us to know that we got to be a part of uh, them getting their marriage back together. Uh, so they didn't get a divorce. Um, I don't know exactly how they're doing right now, but we still have a really good friendship uh, and still have a lot of hard questions that he continues to ask. But um, we're, we're having those conversations, which I, I feel like is amazing. And I appreciate Jimmy, my friend, sharing his story with us this morning. His story ties in so well with where we're going today. We're talking about how in the world to have conversations with people who believe differently than us, live differently than us. And how we can have those conversations in a way that, that neither condemns them as people nor condones their sins. So we'll get there in just a few moments. But before I do, let me mention one thing. Uh, we've been telling you week after week about the conversation guide that we made to go along with this series. Uh, the series that we're teaching, Pursuit, we're not only doing it in this room. We're also teaching our kids upstairs in kids' ministries lessons that coincide with what you're hearing. Our students are hearing these same messages on Wednesday night. So we created this conversation guide that you can use with your family, with your spouses, your kids, your friends, to just talk about what God's teaching you and what you're learning week after week, okay? Now here's the cool news. We have a new way for you to get the conversation guide. Today we are officially releasing to you the brand new Crosspoint City Church app. I'm really excited about this. We've been working on it for months now. And so if you have a smartphone or a tablet, man, you can go ahead and grab those things out, download it now, go to your app store, just search Crosspoint City Church, and you'll find it there. 
Um, a lot of cool features you can watch, listen to, the messages. You can sign up for groups. You can sign up to serve. You can keep up with our blog, latest news, what's going on in the life of our church. There's a, uh, a Bible feature. Also, the conversation guide is going to be there. And so you can download it today. And a little bit later on this afternoon, you'll go and you'll find the conversation guide for today's message. And you can start using it, all right? So download that app and help us to get the word out, share it on social media, let your friends know so that we can get people using it, okay? Well, let's do this. Let's grab our Bibles, or if you want to use your brand new app, you can do that, or version, whatever, I don't care. Uh, but if you have something, let's go to John chapter 1 together. John chapter 1. If you are new to Crosspoint, or maybe you haven't been here recently, you should know that in the past two weeks... We have been learning how to practically and effectively live out the mission that God has given us as his church. The mission to pursue people far from God with the hope and love of Jesus in order to help them become his followers. Now, to understand the how of that mission, all we've been doing is looking at the who that the mission is founded upon. And just so I know that you guys are with me on this sleepy, rainy Sunday morning, church, who was our mission founded upon? Jesus. That's it. Man, you guys are awesome. You're with me. Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the one who gives us a human picture of how to pursue people that they might become his followers. As we read in the Bible, look, when you and I were at our worst, spiritually dead, stuck in sin, unable to save ourselves or change our lives, what did Jesus do? He pursued us. When we couldn't make our way to the God of the universe, the God of the universe made his way to us. And he made his way to us through what's known as the incarnation. Now, if you have your Bibles open to John 1, let's read verse 14 together and reestablish what the incarnation is. Here's what John tells us. And the word became flesh. The word, word, that's a title he uses to refer to Jesus. It's the Greek word logos, self-expression or speech. That's the, that's the idea here. Uh, and the self-expression or the divine expression of God, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John tells us here that a couple thousand years ago, Jesus, who is God, wrapped himself in flesh and he came to this earth to live among us as a man. That's the incarnation. All that word means is that God became a man. And we learned last week that after becoming a man, Jesus spent his entire life here on the earth building a very particular type of reputation that allowed him to establish trust and rapport with sinful people, sinful people that he came to save, people like you and people like me. And as we're going to learn today, it was his incarnation along with his reputation that allowed him to have conversations with those very people, conversations that would radically change their lives. Now, look, don't miss this. That progression that we see in the life of Jesus, incarnation, reputation, conversation, this is the same progression that helps us in our mission. Accomplishing our mission begins with you and I living incarnational lives. And I know that's a new phrase for some of us. Here's all I mean when I say it. People should be able, people outside the walls of this building should be able to look at the life of Jesus in the pages of this book and then look at our lives and say about our lives that our lives look a whole lot like his life. That's the idea of living an incarnational life. When you live that life, here's what happens. Your reputation starts to mirror the reputation of Jesus. Sin becomes less and less in your life. People start to know you as a friend of sinners. That's who Jesus was known as. You start to become that person that fights for all that truly matters to God. 
And as a result, you establish trust and rapport with the very people that Jesus loves and wants to save. And then you can start to have meaningful conversations about life and about Jesus. Now look, in order to fully understand how to get to those conversations, I want to spend just a few minutes, if I can, talking about um, the back half of this verse. We haven't really gone here yet in this series. And I know some of you, you've heard me teach this before, so you're going to be thinking when I start, I already know this. I don't want you to think about whether or not you know it. Here's what I want you to ask uh, of your life. Are you living this? Is this true of you? Here's what John tells us about Jesus. When he came to the earth as a man, two qualities defined his life. Grace and truth. As people, we tend to lean toward one of these qualities over the other. Like we are naturally inclined to be either grace people or truth people. And here's how you know the difference. Grace people, they want everybody to love everybody. They're huggers. Like if a person's hugging you, they're probably a grace person. They just want everybody to get along all the time. The thought of hurting someone else's feelings is almost too much for them to handle, right? Grace people are typically kind, compassionate people who put people first. Now, truth people are different. Truth people put the truth first. If there is an option between being honest and being nice, they will be honest every single time. Some of you are sitting next to truth people, and that's why you're laughing, right? Look, I want you to know, even though grace and truth, these qualities are amazing, good things in and of themselves, if you lean too far in either direction, they can land you in some dangerous territory. Here's what I mean. If you lean too far in the grace direction, you can actually start condoning sin. You can start believing the lie that, that loving a person well means letting them live however they want to live, and you'll, admit, you'll, you'll sit back and, and say nothing and do nothing as they indulge sin that could very well wreck and destroy their lives. On the other hand, if you lean too far in the truth direction, you could start condemning people. You can use the truth to beat people up. To start using it to hold them accountable. You might even use it to start uh, repaying people for sin in their life. And at that point, look, you're playing God in the lives of people, and that's not your job. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus didn't lean in one direction over the other. John tells us that he was full of both grace and truth all the time. He was loving, he was caring, he was compassionate, kind, non-judgmental. But at the same time, Jesus was honest and he told the truth. He called people away from their sin every chance he got. He didn't condone sin, nor did he condemn people. Jesus paved his own way. He showed truth, or I'm sorry, he showed grace so that he could share truth, and he did it in a way that radically changed people's lives. Now, knowing this to be true, I decided to stir the pot a little bit with my staff this past week. Uh, I asked them a very simple question. And our conversation about this question went on for a few days. It's a question that I know is going to challenge some of us. It's probably going to make some of us uncomfortable. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Not to create controversy. Not to, to, to shock anybody. I just think it's that important for our conversation and our topic today. So here was the question I asked. If Jesus was the only baker in town and a gay couple asked him to bake their wedding cake, would he do it? What do you do it? Now, look, you don't need to answer it out loud. I know some of you already have and just don't want to create a church split today. So um, <laughs> you just hang tight for a few minutes at least. But just think about how you'd answer the question. Some of you, as we just heard, automatically, absolutely he'd do it. 
I'm sure that there are others of us in the room who are thinking right now, I don't know. James, I'm not so sure that he would. I'll tell you, our staff went back and forth. Uh, we had the conversation about why he would, why he wouldn't. Both sides offered very reasonable, logical, and even biblical arguments. I'll tell you, that, that conversation with my team affirmed for me what I already believed to be true going into today, which is this. That a lot of these issues we as Christians treat as black and white are not nearly as black and white as we try to make them. Look, can we just be honest? Isn't it really difficult to know at times where the lines are between condoning sin and showing grace and sharing truth and condemning people? It's tough, isn't it? And if you're that person in the room going, it ain't tough, it's all black and white, James. Look, let me just put a spin on my question and ask it a little differently. Uh, If Jesus were the only baker in town and the obese couple asked him to bake their wedding cake, would he do it? I think that's a fair question. I know it's kind of hard, but... But gluttony, look, gluttony is talked about twice as much in the Bible as homosexuality. So where do we think Jesus would land on that one? Again, let's be honest. A lot of these cultural issues that are in our face right now are not nearly as black and white as we try to make them. Now, here's why I bring this up, and here's why it's important for where we're going today. You and I as Christians have to be so careful today more now than ever about choosing sides and drawing hard lines in the sand on issues that could very well fall into the gray category. When we're not careful, here's what we'll do. We'll lose sight of the fact that these issues are not simply moral issues with right and wrong answers. They're people issues. The lives of real people are at stake in these conversations. And when you lose sight of that, it becomes very easy and very convenient to dehumanize people in an effort to fight for your side and to win your argument. And once you dehumanize people, your opportunity to have a conversation about life and Jesus is gone forever. Now, before we get to that conversation, here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the cake for just a moment because I know what some of you want to know. James, what do you think, bro? That's what you want to know, right? How would you answer that? What do you think Jesus would do? Here's my answer. I don't know. I'll tell you what I do know, because at the end of the day, what I think doesn't matter. What I know matters. Here's what I know. I know that if that was a real-life scenario, Jesus would find some way to be kind, compassionate, and gracious to that couple wanting a cake so that he could establish trust and rapport and arrive at the place where he could have a truth conversation about their lives and his kingdom. If he believed that baking a cake would get him there, maybe he'd bake the cake. If he could get there a different way, maybe he wouldn't. I just know that Jesus would show grace and share truth in a way that neither condoned sin nor condemned people. And if you dreams, how do you know that? Well, it's simple. Because when you look at the Gospels, this is what you find Jesus, the Savior of the world, doing time and time again for people in desperate need of his hope and his salvation. If you still have your Bibles open to John 1, flip over a few pages with me, if you will, to John 4. Today we're going to look at a story in which Jesus does the very thing that I just described for a woman who would have fallen into the category of far from God. We're going to start reading in verse 1, if you're already there. If you don't have anything with you, then you can follow along with me. Here's what John tells us. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and that's John the Baptist, by the way, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, look, Jesus having to pass through Samaria would have been out of the ordinary during his day. Devout Jews, because they hated the Samaritans, would never go through Samaria. Samaritans were a racially mixed group of people who had both Jewish and Gentile ancestors. And so the Jewish people looked down upon them, treated them poorly. Whenever they would travel from Judea to Galilee, they would actually take the long way. Samaria sat in between the two. They would take the long way just to avoid the people that lived there. Jesus, having to pass through Samaria, suggests that he was intentionally pursuing this woman that we're getting ready to meet. Keep reading with me. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon, by the way. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, I want to stop and talk. Look, the fact that this woman was coming to the well to draw water in the middle of the afternoon lets us know immediately that something was wrong socially in her life. Women during this day would typically travel early in the morning to draw water. They would do so in groups so that they could collect enough for their daily tasks. This woman, again, she's alone in the middle of the afternoon, lets us know that her community had cast her out. She had been disregarded. She had been thrown away. But why? Well, when you keep reading the story, you find that this was a a promiscuous woman. She had been with several men throughout her life, married multiple times. The man that she was living with and sleeping with when she met Jesus wasn't her husband. And because of her lifestyle, no one wanted anything to do with her except for Jesus. She comes to the well this day, and Jesus engages this woman probably in a way that she hadn't been engaged in a really long time, and he asks her for a drink of water. Now, some of us might wonder, James, is that really a big deal? Well, it was a huge deal for a few reasons. First, the religious guidelines of Jesus' day would have instructed him to have nothing to do with this woman. Jesus was a rabbi. This woman was promiscuous. Rabbis were not supposed to have anything to do with women like her. Secondly, social guidelines would have said, Jesus, you should have nothing to do with this woman. You see, Jewish men weren't supposed to speak to women that they were not married to in public, especially women of questionable character. And then lastly, cultural guidelines would have said to Jesus, you don't have anything to do with this woman, as I said a moment ago, because you're a Jew, she's a Samaritan. You guys are supposed to hate each other. What I love about Jesus is that he defied the guidelines. He broke all the rules. When society, culture, and religion would have been saying to Jesus, choose a side, Jesus said, I'm not going to choose. I'm not going to go the way of, of society, culture, and religion and avoid this woman altogether. That's condemnation. I'm not going to ignore her promiscuity and act like her sin's no big deal. That's condoning. Jesus chooses his own way. He engages this woman in a graceful manner. And that opens the door for him to have a truth conversation that radically changes her life. And it's from their conversation that you and I learn how to have conversations with people far from God in a way that neither condemns them as people nor condones the sin they're living in. So let's talk. If you're taking notes, this is good stuff to write down. The first thing we learn is this, that we need to always let grace lead the conversation. We need to always let grace lead the conversation conversation. 
As a guy who grew up in a small, traditional, super conservative church, my experience was that when you talked about Jesus, truth should always lead the conversation. For example, I remember going to Tuesday night visitation when I was in high school at my church. We'd pile into a big church van and we'd drive from neighborhood to neighborhood knocking on doors at 7 o'clock at night, totally interrupting dinner time, bedtime routines, right? And we'd show up with a gospel track in our hand. Some of you don't even know what that is, do you? If you don't, just find somebody over the age of 40 who's been in church a long time, let them tell you. But we attempted to hit these people with a couple questions when they opened the door, and the questions were this. Uh, If your life were to end today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And the second question was, if you found yourself standing before God today, and he asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? Look, those are important questions that we all need to have our answers to. But back then, people didn't think our questions were very important. We'd try to ask them. Doors would be slammed in our faces. People would yell at us, tell us to get off their porches. At times, people would peek out the blinds and see us and then turn all the lights off and pretend that they weren't home. I mean, I can't blame them, right? I mean, I'm not a huge fan of looking out on my porch and, and seeing the two guys in white shirts who just pulled up on bicycles waiting to talk to me, right? Just being honest. My assumption was this back then. People just don't like the truth. They don't want to hear it. Today, I believe that couldn't be further from the truth. Here's what my life experience and ministry experience has taught me. People want to know what's true. But they want to hear what's true from a person that they trust and from a friend that they know actually loves them and cares about them. And church, the way that we establish trust and friendship is by leading our conversations with grace. This is what Jesus did for the woman in John 4, is it not? I mean, put yourself in her shoes for a moment and just think about how she must have felt. Here she is walking alone again to the well in the middle of the afternoon. She's probably ashamed of the life she's lived. She's embarrassed. Her self-esteem's probably in the toilet She's wondering why in the world she can't keep a man and and why the men she keeps finding are so awful to her. And then she meets Jesus, the God-man. And Jesus gives her grace before doing anything else. And that grace opened the door for the truth conversation to be had. Look, here's what I want us to take from this. It's really simple. When grace oozes out of your life and mine, that grace will open the door for us to speak truth. Not forcefully, not awkwardly, but as friends to the people we're talking to. The second thing we learn is this, that we should talk when invited. That we should talk when invited. I want us to go back to the passage, verse 9, and I want us to see together how this woman responds to Jesus when he engages her and asks her for water. Look at this. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Think about this. What was this woman doing here? She was inviting Jesus to talk. Was she not? She could have avoided him, walked away. That guy's weird, right? Why is he talking to me? But that's not what happened. Instead, I have to believe that that she was so blown away by the fact that, that this Jewish man and rabbi spoke to her that she had to know more. Jews, again, I think about us. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Look, that world outside the walls of this church, that's what they believe oftentimes about Christians and them. 
oh, well, well, Christians aren't supposed to have dealings with people out here in the world like us. Church, it's our job to prove them wrong. We should talk when invited. This woman wants to know more, and, and so Jesus tells her more. Look, the simple takeaway uh, is this, that when you and I show radical grace to people, grace that they're not used to experiencing, when we live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and serve like Jesus, we will find people inviting us to speak truth into their lives and into their situations. And if you're skeptical about that, James, ah, I don't really know. Here's what I want you to do this week. Go read 1 Peter 3.15 on your own time. 1 Peter 3.15 and ask yourself this question. Why would Peter tell us as Christ's followers to always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us? It's almost like he wrote that believing that if we lived like Jesus, loved like Jesus, showed grace like Jesus, that people would seek us out to ask us what's true. Look, I've personally experienced this at the gym where I work out uh, as a guy who has to be locked away in a church building for many hours throughout the week. My gym is the one place that I can be around guys who don't know Jesus five days a week, a couple of hours uh, a day. And I've taken time to build friendships with these guys. Many of them have learned that I'm a follower of Christ. Some of them have started learning recently that I'm a pastor. I always love that conversation. You're a what? Ah, take that as a compliment that they didn't know. But, but my friendships with these guys have led to some amazing conversations. Like not long ago, a buddy in the gym, he came up to me and, and he said, James, I, I just need to talk to you, man. I, I'm stuck in deep depression. I've never been here before. I don't know how to find my way out. Dude, what am I supposed to do? And his question led to an incredible conversation about the hope and freedom found in Jesus Christ. And then my buddy just asked me to pray for him right there in the gym. I had another friend. I'm getting ready to walk out the door, and he stops me. James, James, I need to ask you something. Um, I had a friend this last week commit suicide, and I don't know what to believe about where he's going to spend eternity. James, can you tell me what's true? And that question led to an amazing conversation about the depths of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I had another friend, he stopped me a few weeks ago, and he said, James, my marriage is falling apart. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, man. I don't know where to go from here, how to fix things. And that led us to have an incredible conversation about Jesus and his plans and desires for marriage. Listen, I could give other examples. I can't tell you how many times I've had to call my wife and tell her I plan to be home 30 minutes ago, but so-and-so caught me, and, and here's the conversation I just had. The point, again, is simple. Look, when you and I pursue people with grace, not morality, not hardcore doctrine and theology, those things are important and they have their time and place, but when we pursue people far from God with grace, grace will open the door. For invitations to have truth conversations. And when we're invited, we talk. Now, what do we talk about? Well, two more things. We learn from this story that when we're invited to talk, we should talk about the kingdom. We should talk about the kingdom. But what if I told you that Jesus hates everything about life and the world that you hate, and he came to this earth as a man 2,000 years ago to change it all? Would you believe me? And I hope so, because that's exactly why he came. And he points this Samaritan woman to that very truth in his conversation with her. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's really confused. She thinks Jesus is talking about the water in the well in front of her. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I love it. The questions continue. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said back to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But the living water that Jesus speaks of in these verses is a reference to the Holy Spirit. We find evidence of this later in the book of John in chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. And the point Jesus is making is simple. That when you and I receive him as Savior, we also obtain his Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God comes to live inside of our bodies, changing everything about who we are, what we desire, how we've been living. And when we receive Jesus as Savior, obtain the Holy Spirit, that leads us to eternal life. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to think about, right now, what comes into your mind when you think about eternal life. Like when you hear that, what, what's the picture? For those of us who are thinking of sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, wearing angel wings, good news, that's not eternal life. According to the Bible, eternal life is this. Those who know Jesus living in a redeemed and restored world in brand new resurrected bodies with Jesus in the flesh, ruling and reigning as king. Now this is so incredible that I don't want us to miss it, so let's slow down and just imagine this together. I want you to picture yourself right now in a brand new body. A body that'll never feel pain again. A body that'll never grow old, never lose hair, thank God for some of us. Never get sick, never die again. And we're gonna live in that body on an earth that is void of all the things we hate about life and this earth. Like sin and its consequences will be no more. No more suffering, injustice, poverty, sickness, disease. No more violence, no more wars, no more rebellious children, broken marriages, no more death. And on that earth, Jesus himself will be with us in the flesh. No more politics, shady politicians. No more presidential debates or elections. Jesus is king and every living person loves him and lives in full submission to him each and every day. That is what is waiting on those of us who know Jesus in eternity. Now here's the beautiful news and please don't miss it. But contrary to what some of us think and believe, we don't have to wait until we die to start experiencing that life in his eternal kingdom. We can start experiencing life in his eternal kingdom right here, right now. Look, I want you to know that Jesus 2,000 years ago came to this earth as a man to live a life we couldn't live, a life of perfection. He died a death in our place for our sins, and he rose from the dead three days later so that the kingdom of God could invade the kingdom of darkness that exists in our world and win out. Look, when I say kingdom of God, and, and when you see it in the scriptures, because Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time throughout the Gospels, all I'm referencing is a realm in which someone or something reigns. That's all Jesus is talking about, a realm in which someone or something reigns. Right now, here on this earth, because of our sin, a kingdom characterized by things like selfishness, greed, lust, 
anger, poverty, injustice, sickness, and death rules and reigns over our world. You know that. You can turn on the news and see it day in and day out. Jesus came to this earth as a man to free us from having to live in that kingdom and to transfer us into the kingdom of God where he rules and reigns. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that that if you know Jesus, life is going to be magically easy. Right? We still live in a world full of sin and full of sinful people. And because of that, life is going to be difficult at times. All I'm saying is that when you live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ here and now, you get a taste of what it's like to live in his eternal kingdom. Everything changes. Even when life is hard, it changes. Your marriage changes. The way you spend money changes. The way you view yourself and other people changes. Your life is no longer characterized by lust, anger, selfishness, greed, fear, worry, regret, addiction, whatever it may be. Church, this is what we tell people. We talk to them about the amazing kingdom of God. We tell them that the brokenness that exists in their lives and in our world is not God's fault. That's what a lot of people believe. Some of us in this room believe that. We might ask the question, man, if if God's so loving, if he's so gracious, then why is my life and why is our world the way it is? Why is everything so broken? Why doesn't God do something? He did. 2,000 years ago, he did. He wrapped himself in flesh and he came to this earth as a man to live among us so that he could ultimately give up his very life and usher us into his kingdom where life is completely different. And we can live that life not only now, but we'll experience it forever and eternity. We tell people about his kingdom. The last thing is this. We learn from this story that not only do we talk about the kingdom, but we talk about the king. I love how this conversation with this woman and Jesus unfolds. They go from talking about water to talking about promiscuity, to talking about worship. And at the very end of their conversation, it's almost comical, this lady looks at Jesus and she says, "Uh, I know the Messiah is coming soon, he'll make sense of all this for us. And in verse 26, Jesus kind of has a moment. The guy you're talking about, that's me. And I love it, man, this woman, in amazement, she leaves Jesus right where he's sitting. She runs back to her community back to the very people who had disregarded her, thrown her away, cast her out. And she says to them, come see this man who's told me everything I've ever done. Their conversation terminated on the king. Her conversation with her community terminated on the king. And church, when we have conversations with people far from God, our conversations have to terminate on the king, not on morality, Not on creationism versus uh, evolution. Not on new earth and old earth. Have you ever noticed as Christians how we'll talk about the dumbest things, argue about the dumbest things, and never get to Jesus? We cannot be those people. If Jesus was God and he died and rose again, let's talk about him and figure out all the other stuff later. We talk about Jesus. Here's the great news. I've learned this in my life and ministry experience. People actually like talking about Jesus. Not necessarily about church or religion or even Christianity. I've learned people like talking about Jesus. Even if people don't believe what we believe about Jesus, there's no denying the fact that he is truly one of the most polarizing and fascinating human beings that has ever lived on the face of the planet. Now here's why that's good news for us as it concerns our mission. Remember the mission. We have not been called to convert people. 
to moralism. We have not been called to convert people to a certain religion. We haven't been called to convert people to a belief system called Christianity. The mission is this. We help people become followers of King Jesus. That's it. That's all our lives should be about. And the more we talk to people about King Jesus, who he is, and what he came to this earth to do for them, the more we're able to help them make sense of who he wants to be for them and what he wants to do in and through their lives. In closing, I'll say this. This conversation piece of mission that we're talking about today might go on for a long time when it comes to certain people in your life. That's okay. What we can't do is give up on people because they're not changing according to our time frame. We have to keep the conversation alive. We have to believe that nothing is impossible for God, that he can change the hardest heart, that he can change the, the most sinful person. Maybe some of us feel like that's us today. Can I just tell you God loves you and he can do a work in your life that will leave you forever changed? Guarantee you that. We have to keep the conversation alive, church. Let grace lead. Talk when invited. Talk about the kingdom. Talk about the king. And you pray along the way that God would help you to leave all the results in his hands. We're going to pray for that together right now. So I'm just going to ask us all over the room just to bow our heads. We're going to close our eyes. God, first and foremost, we just want to thank you for our king, our savior, our friend, our brother, Jesus. God, we know that, that your kingdom and life in it would not be possible without him doing what he did on our behalf. God, my, my prayer is that every day you would give us what we need to follow Jesus, to love him more, to obey him more so that our lives can look more and more like his life and, and we can be lights in this dark, broken world. God, help some of us in the room to be more gracious, to be more kind, to be more compassionate. Some of us need that. God, others of us in the room need your help in being courageous and bold and, and telling the truth to people who need to hear it. God, all of us need patience. God, don't let us give up on people. Don't let us grow tired or weary of this mission that you've given us. God, we're just trusting you to be all that we need and to give us all that we need to do what you've called us to do and to be the people you've called us to be. God, if there's a person in this room right now whose heart is stirring, they walked in this room, they don't know you, but they need to know you. Maybe they saw Jesus today for the first time, for who he truly is. God, would you just meet them in the next few moments, right where they're sitting? God, speak to their hearts, reveal yourself to them, give them the faith they need to trust in you before they walk out of this place today. God, would you do a work in their life? God, I'm trusting you for that. God, as we celebrate all that you are, would you just... Let your spirit sweep through this place. Meet with us. Speak to us. God, we love you more than we can express in words. We thank you for your great love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord.